HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Good afternoon. You're here with the Heritage Radio Network. It's Friday. We're here with the Farm Report. We've got two great guests with us today to talk about the Tunis breed of lamb. We've got James and Lisa Twomey of Sandstone Ridge Farm. And today's program was brought to you by Hearst Ranch. And we're about to get started. Hello, James and Lisa. Hi, Heather. Hi, Heather. How are you both today? We're doing just great. Wonderful. Well, um, today's topic, I think, is uh, very important. I, we are going to talk about the rare breed of Tunis lamb, which the two of you should, at this point, I hope, be experts on, um, as you've been raising this breed for about how long now? Oh, we got our first sheep in uh, July 2006, so it's just three years now. Three years now you've been raising this breed, which, um, to my knowledge, isn't that widely bred. Um, can you tell me a little bit about how you learned of the Tunis breed and what attracted you to want to raise them on your farm? Well, we kind of um, got into the Tunis uh, by accident. We had bought our land here and our neighbors across the street had animals and we didn't and we thought, you know, we, we really need some animals here. And mm-hmm. our neighbors told us about a, a local gentleman who was selling his Tunis flock. And we had never heard of the Tunis, so we Quick went to the internet and, and read about them and found the uh, uh, National Tunis Registry, which is uh, www.tunissheep.org. And um, we found out they were um, easy mothers, very friendly and docile. They're medium sized, so if we had to wrestle them, um, it wouldn't be you know too difficult. But the main thing that attracted us was that it was a heritage breed, um, and it was one of the uh, you that uh, we knew about in our area, and we thought it was a great idea to kind of try and keep them going and, and keep the breed uh, in circulation, and, and we've been very happy with our choice. Now, if you'll remind me, where exactly is Sandstone Ridge Farm located? We are in Lafarge, Wisconsin, um, which is southwest Wisconsin. The nearest big city is La Crosse. Okay, so is the Tunis breed a breed that is you know, more adaptable to the kinds of climate and region where you're located in the United States, or is this a breed that could be raised pretty much anywhere? I, I think it actually came from northern Africa, so it probably it would be better suited for temperatures higher than we usually get. Um, but they've been great in the winter, and when they get snow, they, they don't mind sometimes 
it snows and we come home and find just lumps in the yard and it's actually the sheep covered with snow. <laughs> uh-huh. So so the cold doesn't bother them at all. They, I think they'd be a good breed pretty much anywhere. And now what is the terrain like on your farm? I mean, is it grassy? Is it rocky? What, what is it? Where are these, um, where are the sheep? Where are they grazing? Are they grazing? Oh, sure, Heather. I'd be glad to, to answer that. Um, our part of Wisconsin was actually bypassed by the glaciers. So our part of Wisconsin looks like the Midwest did about 200 million years ago, which is very hilly, more like West Virginia than you imagine the Midwest looking like. So every step forward is a step up. It's a very 45-degree angle type of terrain with Hmm. lots of sandstone outcroppings and springs, natural springs filled with trout around here. And uh, our sheep just love to walk uphill. Uh, That's sort of where they uh, sleep in the nighttime is at the top of a hill. And then during the daytime, they come down and graze on our pastures. So they get lots of good exercise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's important for sheep to, to, because they came from hilly regions, Mm -hmm. it's important that they live in an environment that's as, you know, close to their nature as possible. And now these hills, they're covered with, with grass, I'm assuming, or is it more just like rocky? The most important thing about pasture is that it be diverse mm-hmm. because we have a growing season that starts in late March and goes all the way until early November. And we have different weather patterns during those times, different amounts of rainfall, different temperatures. So if we just had one kind of grass, mm-hmm. you, you might have a really wonderful May and a really horrible September. So the important is diversity in the pasture. And so grass makes up about 60% of the pasture. And then another type of plant called a legume. And you know these as... uh, Like a bean? Peas and soybeans. I just learned a peanut is actually a legume the other day. It is. Things that capture nitrogen from the air naturally fertilize the land. So it's also, when you plant legumes, it's a very, very organic and natural way to fertilize land. And the legumes that we've planted on purpose are red clover and alfalfa. So as the sheep graze throughout a season, they're getting grass and alfalfa and clover. So that's a protein-based diet as well, then? That's right. Uh, Legumes are very high in protein. And uh, it's important for sheep not to have too much protein, but um, uh, something around 11 or 12% in their diet is, is what they need. And we're careful to give that to them. And do you supplement their diet with anything other than what they graze on on the, on the land? Um, the only time we need to do that really is when they have twins and they're in their last sort of trimester or the last three weeks of gestation. Uh, you said when, they have, when the ewes have twins inside of them, huh. the amount of food that they can eat decreases, so they need to have sort of a high-energy food sometimes. And the carbohydrates that we give them would be a little bit of cracked corn and a little bit of soybean meal. Wow. What would you say the percentages of uh, your ewes that have twins? I mean, is it, I don't know if you would know these statistics, as many as you know humans would have? Oh, golly, it's much more. In fact, humans have changed sheep over the past 7,000 years to be as productive and profitable as possible. Uh, We've changed them so that they actually need to get a haircut about twice a year. Uh, Naturally, they would have just shed their wool. uh, And we've changed them to give 
multiple births. And so I would say that about 75% of the mothers will have twins at any given time. Wow. So that may do a little bit in terms of raising your, your feed costs, but in terms of uh, what you, um, the yield is, you know, going to, I guess, give you more because you're getting two for, for one in a sense. That's exactly right. And, and that's one of the advantages um, that we've learned about heritage breeds is that they give twins much more easily, whereas some of the breeds that uh, came from the British Isles and that have been kind of changed by humans to be just big, they oftentimes have troubles with the multiple births. So that's another advantage to the Jacob and the Tunis and other heritage breeds. Right, and we're speaking just uh, in breeds of uh, lamb and yes, sheep. Yes, exactly, sheep. Okay, and um, I, I was wanting to ask, how big is your farm, by the way? Well, we own 15 acres, and we lease another 12. So with 27 acres, how many animals are you able to raise? Um, ranges from about 40 as a minimum and maybe 55 as a maximum. Okay. And um, what would you say are some of like the biggest obstacles you, 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 um, you come across on the farm and with the, the sheep? Well, the things that we worried about when we first went into sheep, you know, the things that the books kind of encourage you to worry about, um, turned out not to be such a problem. That is, the, the sheep really are more like cats in how independent they can be most of the time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, they're less like dogs. and You know, they don't need human companionship. Although tuna sheep are incredibly friendly. We've got several that come up for scratching on their chest. What is uh, that, the scratching on their chest? Yeah, they they just love it. They want some attention. They'll stand there and, you know, for five or ten minutes until they're done. But they'll they'll want to be scratched just like a cat. Really, they're, they're very independent. Uh, the, the time we need to, you know, the things that are most challenging are making sure that they get all the food that they need in the wintertime. Mm-hmm. And again, when they're carrying twins, uh, you know, they can, if they don't get all the calories they need, uh, they can begin to starve very quickly. And one of the, one of the defense mechanisms that sheep have is they never want to look sick. And so they never act very ill or they never act underfed. And so you have to really get to know your flock, almost the way you get to know your coworkers or a child, yes. So that, and because they can't speak, you have to sort of look in their eyes and look how they're holding their ears. So I would say the biggest challenge was understanding the nonverbal communication of sheep, telling us what they need more of and what they need less of. It's very subjective and very, it's very interesting. That is very interesting. And I, I've never had a dog, so I'm not very good at uh, being able to communicate with animals in that sense. But um, that's why you're a farmer and you are, I guess, uh, learning more and more about communicating non-verbally with animals day in and day out. We have to. It's actually part of good management, and that's true. Definitely. Now, I'm actually, I want to take a step back, and you were talking about the legumes and the grasses that you planted to, you know, keep the terrain diverse. Did you do this before you purchased the, the lambs to have on your farm, or did you do this while you were, you know, purchasing the animals to come start raising on the farm? Well, the, the land had already been uh, pastured, so uh, it wasn't as though we were buying sort of... Um, 
uh, of like a wild terrain or something. The, the previous owners had kept horses and cattle on it, and so it, it was what farmers call an improved pasture, meaning you know it didn't have a lot of horrible weeds or or you know any poisonous things on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but but what we found it really didn't have, and largely because clover is although it's a perennial it's a short-lived perennial so every three years we have to walk around with little buckets of clover seed that look like poppy seeds actually then just sprinkle them out onto the lawn right because onto the pasture what exactly a perennial is a plant that only comes up again once once or two two seasons then you have to replant it or or am i getting that mixed up can you explain what a perennial is one more time yeah, a, a perennial would be something that that comes back by itself Okay. So an, an annual, most weeds, for example, are annual. Mm-hmm. That is, if you do nothing, if you don't do anything to them, they they go away the next year. It's just that their seeds, you know, kind of keep their little species going. But when it comes to, um, to legumes mm-hmm. and some grasses, you just have to uh, put a little input, you know, and revitalize the pastures. Just in case they're not dropping seedlings. Yes, exactly. Perfect. Okay, that's what I was wondering. Um, now, I, I, I'm, I don't know about this, but is there like a certain time of year when the, the ewes and the, the sheep, or, and excuse my you know ignorance, but maybe you could help define these terms as well for our listeners, that they breed and then the, you know, the baby lambs uh, start to grow and then they go to be harvested and you know, brought to slaughter. Can you explain um, what the, uh, the, the calendar is really like for a, a, you know, the, the full circle life of a sheep or a lamb? Oh, I'd be glad to, um, because it's one of the things that we had to learn. You okay, know, when so we approached it, we, we really had no knowledge base, and we sort of let nature take its course. Um, in, in general, you'll, if you have about uh, 20 girls, we'll call them ewes, okay. um, you only need one boy, hmm. and we'll call that a ram. So it's one to 20. That's one that's lucky pretty. ram. <laughs> yes, <laughs> indeed, and they, uh, they're... They live up to their reputation, let's put it that way, in terms of their, uh, their eagerness to, to do their job. And um, so with a flock of 40, we, we tend to have two rams. Okay. When you, you can put the ram in with the ewes any time you want to. And in about five and a half months, you will have babies. Hmm. Those are lambs, of course. But So those, those ewes are always ready and willing to go, it sounds like. Yes, not all breeds. But okay. as, especially with heritage breeds, they are they are able to give birth um, what uh, sheep pe- people call out of season, that is out of the springtime. All sheep will give you lambs in the spring. One of the great things about a heritage breed is that they haven't been so tweaked by people to to give a specific thing. They act more like nature. And so we have lambs born nearly every month of the year except July, and that gives us the ability to service customers not just one time of the year, but all year round with different sized animals. And so that's one of the things that we sort of stumbled into accidentally with the Tunis is, is breeding out of season. So we, uh, what, what one wants to do to, to run a profitable farm is buy as little hay as possible. That is, pastures are practically free, Hay in the winter time is a major expenditure, probably our second highest cost in terms of doing business. Next to and, what? Um, 
um, well, I guess next to the land and property taxes. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the land has, has a cost, too. Um, but in terms of operating, there's no doubt that, that uh, having the, uh, the hay in the wintertime is a, is a major expenditure. So hay has, so, is more expensive than feed for you, which is interesting. It's um, Usually feed is the, the highest uh, uh, costing thing for most of the farmers we speak with. But that definitely depends on the animal and uh, how many they're raising and the acreage, of course. Yes, and some people don't keep animals over as many animals over the winter as we do. Uh-huh. Many farmers around us, they'll raise animals, and then in, come November, usually Halloween is sort of the deadline, they sell everything off because they don't want to have to feed them hay. And, and that, that's one way of operating. But, you know, our flock is something that we care for. Uh, you know, we, we know the personalities of our animals. We don't want to sell them off one year and then buy at an auction another year. Mm-hmm. These are families to us, and we have animals that are great-grandchildren of animals that we've owned, and, and we like that sort of circle of life aspect to it. So that's why hay becomes a, a big issue. And we, we decide to have lambs such that they can nurse off of their mothers mm-hmm. and uh, for about three and a half or four months. Then they can go on to grass and they only have to eat a little bit of hay. So what one does is try to time when your rams go in with the ewes so that you don't have to buy as much hay. Okay. Now, how do you decide, I mean, so the, the rams and the ewes, the mothers and the fathers, do those always stay the same and then their offspring is kind of what goes to market? Yes, that's exactly right. Um, the, the, the life cycle of a, of a sheep is about 12 years long. And so every year, about, you know, 5 to 10% of your flock needs to be replaced. Okay. So of the girls that get born, I would say that two-thirds of them get to be replacement ewes. That is, they get to grow up and have babies of their own. And only one-third of the girls that are born go to market. When it comes to boys, quite frankly, because you only need one boy for every, or one ram for every 20 ewes, uh, Rams, are almost all of them go to market. I would say 99% of them go to market, and 1% perhaps get sold to a neighbor who will trade a ram with you because you want to have diverse genetics in your ram. Right. And one thing I was actually going to ask, like when you got started, was the ram one of um, your bigger expenses since kind of he's the powerhouse behind making sure you've, you're getting a, you know, offspring? Indeed. that That is... That is true. We had one ram that came with our original flock, and then to get genetic diversity and to sort of have um, a backup as the first one got older, we went out and we shopped just for a ram. And they command premium prices. Uh, you try to find one that's, you know, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger of, of you know, of sheep, something that's bulky and massive and uh, has the strength to get up and go and get done what needs to get done. Uh, and so, you know, you, you do a lot of window shopping to pick out the perfect ram. And just to give you an idea, a U might cost you $100, uh-huh. and a good ram might cost you 600 Wow. And now the, the, um, the National Registry, which you mentioned earlier, which um, the name National Tunis Registry, what was it? 
National Tuna Sheep Registry. Were they the ones that helped you find breeders so that you could purchase your ewe? Yes, they have a magazine that they publish uh, sort of on a you know, semi-annual basis, and it'll have a list of breeders and uh, geographically. So if you wanted to find one in Illinois or wanted to find one in Maine, you'd be able to do that. Wonderful. And now since you guys are um, producing offspring pretty much every month but for July when my birthday is, so I could, uh, you know, call you up and you could give me a happy birthday in July. <laughs> um, does that mean that you are taking, you know, just a, a few of your offspring to market at different times of year because they have to be like the same weight? Like, how does that part of the process work for you guys since you're basically having offspring, you know, all throughout the year? Well, there, there is certainly, uh, the short answer would be yes. We, <laughs> we take lambs to market uh, about every other month Mm-hmm. And there are small quantities, maybe three to five at a time. Okay. Um, and then, you know, towards the springtime, especially around the Orthodox and um, Catholic Easter's, which are our major lamb-consuming months, definitely, um, we we will probably be taking in, you know, perhaps nine at a time. Um, and is there any way that you can control, like, the breeding for the offspring to? Um, you know, have them be born in a certain month to be taken to market so that you have a few more extra animals for when the demand is uh, is needed? Yes, that's exactly right. And it really depends on, on how long you keep the ram in with the ewes mm-hmm. and how many ewes you put in with it. So it's, it's sort of a controlling production, if you would. You know, they're animals and they have their own nature. Definitely. Uh, but, but you can certainly, um, you know, design the, the mating. Basically, we let the rams in with the ewes, and then sometimes we lock them out, you know, just like your mother might have done, you know, to your boyfriend when you 17 <laughs> or something. <laughs> there are some times when he could come into the house, and sometimes he couldn't. And so, too, just like a, a you know, ram in the pasture, we, we uh, allow them to come in at a certain time so that we can meet the demand. Perfect. And one of, one of the interesting things we found, um, not only do the Tunis sheep taste better than the typical lamb, um, that the uh, lamb's wool mm-hmm. is also very, very, uh, you know, high quality. Well, and one of the things I'm looking forward to this winter is wearing my first Tunis lamb's wool sweater that Lisa whoa, knit for me. Oh, no <laughs> way. Well, I was actually going to ask you because you, you mentioned that you, you cut their hair twice a year if there was um, a certain characteristic about their wool. Like, I know there's merino wool, but I don't know if that comes from, like, a merino sheep. I, don't, I really know nothing about that. It does. Merino were a famous Spanish breed that were imported right around 1802, 1803 to this country. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it comes to the Tunis lamb's wool, my wife is the expert, and I'm going to turn it over to her. Hold on. Thank you. So, Lisa. Hi again. Hello. Can I put an order in for a scarf or gloves? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> All right. Well, tell me a little bit about the, the Tunis lamb, uh, the Tunis wool. Uh, it's very soft. Um, it's uh, not as silky smooth as some of the, um, James was mentioning, the merino. It's not like that. But we have a, a woman that we take it to who takes it from fleece to what she calls clouds. It put, she puts it through a carding machine, and that smooths it out, kind of gets it to where you can spin it. And it's very easy to spin. Um, it wants to hold together when you're uh, a new a newbie on a spinning wheel, uh, it's sometimes hard to get the wool to all go in at the same time, but the tunis, tunis wool wants to go together, so that, that's one big plus. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all kind of a uh, light 
oatmeal color. Um, it's very easy to dye. It will take a dye very readily, and, and many people like to dye their wool, and Tunis wool is just ideal for that. And uh, you can spin it thin, you can spin it thick, um, mm. and it was, I, I just had a great time knitting James sweater. <laughs> what color? What color? Did you dye it or did you keep it natural? He wanted to have a natural one, so I would that's assume what we started as with. Well. Yeah, what, what yeah. color is that? Is that like a, I think I've seen pictures of the tunis looking almost like a butterscotch color. Is that it, true? That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. That yeah. sounds nice. You wouldn't, who'd want to dye that? <laughs> Unless they were all black. Of course. (laughs) Um, Now, as we were we were talking about marketing um, the lamb and uh, bringing them to market for things such as the Easter holiday, have you guys um, like what have your biggest challenges been bringing your your animals to market and figuring out you know what to do or where to bring them and things of that sort? Because to sell your your meat, it either needs to be USDA inspected so you can sell it nationwide or you're selling it locally. What do you guys do in terms of selling and how do you overcome some of these issues? Well, we, when we started, we weren't, well, we were new at cheap, we were new at marketing, we were new at everything. Um, And James had a a client with his book restoration company who um, is uh, from Greece and he was very interested. He lived in Illinois, so we first had to find a USDA butcher. Hmm. Um, at that time, there were two <laughs> then hmm. in Wisconsin that would accept lamb. And uh, one um, since uh, sold his business and went to work for the state. So now we just have one. So uh, that, makes it <laughs> that makes it easy to know where to take them. <laughs> totally. Um, and that's Lake Geneva Country Meats in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Okay. Um, How far is that from you? It's... Because we're here in Lafarge and then also in Kenosha, uh, it's kind of midway closer to Kenosha, but so it's on our way back and forth. So that's um, if, if we just were driving there and coming back home, it would be pretty inconvenient because it's really two and a half or three hours, oh, but wow. since it's on our way, it's not too bad. Yeah, well, I have farmers that I know drive about five or six weeks, I mean five or six hours each week to bring their hogs to market, so I guess it could be worse, right? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And the people there are great. They're very... Um, willing to work with us and um, they're busy though and sometimes we have to like to get the um, the date for butchering lambs in April we really need to you know let them know in like November or December because <laughs> so, they have other lamb producers I'm assuming mm-hmm. okay that's right yeah yeah you gotta um, get your orders in early folks yeah. <laughs> for your Easter Tunis lambs <laughs> um, well, one thing I'd like to say is um, Heritage Foods has been so helpful to us to get us I mean, we've really, really appreciated all your help, and you've helped us expand where we wouldn't have been able to on our own, and so I just want to express my gratitude for that. Well, thank you, Um, and I mean, you must say on behalf of, you know, Heritage Foods USA, which is uh, the umbrella and which Heritage Radio Network is a part of, that we appreciate, you know, moving forward breeds such as the Tunis, which are, you know, a rare breed that we would like to see more of in our marketplace. And uh, the reason for this is because of the unique tastes and, you know, characteristics of the breed. Um, Would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about what's special about the Tunis breed? Breed and its taste. I mean, the, the taste of the Tunis lamb, and maybe you could even compare it to like conventional lamb and tell us like what the real differences are and why it's so unique. Well, part uh, one thing, um, kind of an objective standard, um, is that Tunis is listed on the Slow Food USA Arc of Taste. It's one of only three breeds, I think, that is, and that's a a real um, 
advantage in terms of selling the lamb. It, it's tender, it's mild. Um, people who have not had lamb before and think it's going to be gamey, uh, it's not at all. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes in restaurants or um, even if you go to a, a grocery store that sells lamb, a lot of the time it won't be the young lamb. It'll be something, you know, pushing mutton. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Mutton does have a much stronger taste, and many people like that. Mutton's an older lamb, right? So it gets a yeah. lot of exercise and then becomes much more tough. Is that the it, correct it, definition? Is that, and as it matures, it has all you know the hormones running through it, and um, that adds a certain you know strength to the taste. And I guess I don't know how to describe it other than it's stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the tunis lambs and and all the lambs we sell are under a year old. Uh, just are very mild and they're easily digestible. We have some clients who have um, children with special needs. They really like our lamb because their kids can digest it and they don't have some of the problems that they otherwise have. And it it cooks great on the grill. Um, it makes great roasts. You can throw it in the crock pot and, you know, it always turns out great. Wonderful. Now, do you know of any other um, Tunis farmers that you guys are in contact with to kind of share and exchange information to better the breed, in a sense, or do do selective breeding? I mean, that would all kind of fall under the same umbrella, as I think, for me, anyway, in terms of sharing information and statistics and things of that sort. We're, we're lucky that there are um, a few right in our area. There's one farm um, called Shady Blue Acres, and... Uh, they have tunas. Um, we're hoping to exchange a ram with them this fall, just to so they can have you know the benefit of diversity, and we can too. Um, and they um, they also raise um, mule foot pigs, which mm. I think are a heritage breed. Yep, the mule foot um, hog. Yep. Yeah, and they've got um, they have a farmers market also, so they they have a a lot of experience that we don't have. We just have the sheep, um, but so they're very helpful. Um, we've also got another couple of little farther away um, that raises tunas and then also Jacobs. And uh, they are also helpful. And you know, when we have questions, uh, what do you do you know, when, when something looks funny about the hoof? You know, we've got people that we can call who've been through it. And we're also fortunate in that our neighbors who uh, don't raise heritage breeds, but they have years and years of experience, are, they're just great to have around. And... Uh, we are we are trying to breed selectively for the old style tunis, which is different from the show style. The show style that you see at fairs or um, you know, national events tend to be taller, um, heavier. But we like the old style, which is their legs are shorter, but they're more meatier, and they they're just they're easy, they're the medium size that we grew to know and love, and that's mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to breed to continue that style of tunas. Wonderful. Well, we're actually getting ready to wrap up today. I think this has been really informative. Do you have a website or somewhere we could send people to read a little bit more about the breed? If, uh... Oh, sure, yes. Um, our website is www.sandstoneridgefarm. And sandstone, um, just, well, it's pretty much <laughs> like it sounds, sandstoneridgefarm.com. Um, and that tells tells you about us and what we're doing and our, our lambs and our wool. Um, also, the uh, National Tunis Sheep Registry that um, I think we mentioned a couple of times yeah. is www.tunissheep, there's two S's in the middle, .org. And they have 
all kinds of information also, and then a list of breeders throughout the country. So. Wonderful. Well, if we get any questions or ever have um, other sheep farmers on the Radio Network Farm Report, um, we'd love to have you back on as a guest. And we want to thank you for your time today and for telling me and our listeners all about this rare breed Tunis lamb. We hope that um, you know many of our listeners out there will get the opportunity to try the breed of Tunis um, and like it. And we want to thank the Hearst Ranch today for sponsoring this show. Um, of course, we'd like to thank our um, engineer, Nat, our producer today, Lorenzo. And um, if you have any questions, you could always give us a call at 718-497-2128 to call in and talk to our guests and um, the host live. And uh, you can always log on to our website, www.heritageradionetwork.com to re-listen to this interview and all of our other programs on the archives. So thanks again, James and Lisa, and uh, we look forward to having our listeners tune in to next week's Farm Report, Fridays at 4 Eastern Standard Time. Take care. Thank you, Heather. Bye. Bye.